But at that moment at birth, right, the eyes of the law recognizes her as a mother. Father, on the other hand, there are many different elements, you know, depending on the situation of how you came about your fatherhood, your status is determined. So if it is, um, if you're a married man, right, and your wife gives birth, the law immediately recognizes you legally as the father of that child, even if biologically it wasn't your child. So that's one way of determining fatherhood is by looking at marital status of the man. So a married man is legally, automatically the legal father of any children his wife delivers. Um, and, the, and the law will recognize that until there's a dispute. And if that dispute is then clarified by DNA test, then the law will say, okay, you're not. And another man, you know, recognize. If the man is not married, then there are different ways that he could be legally recognized as the father. Uh, one is by registering on a birth certificate. And so if he registers on the birth certificate, the law says, okay, you have accepted paternity and the woman has allowed you, you know, she has consented to you accepting paternity, we will now recognize you as the father. Uh, of course, then later on a dispute happens and it turns out he isn't, then of course, then his name is removed off the birth certificate and it's amended, et cetera. Then you have um, assisted reproduction. And then here is where it gets even more complicated because you have assisted reproduction that is done under uh, HFEA, licensed clinic. And you have these days quite popular, you know, DIY assisted reproduction. So if it's DIY assisted reproduction and we are looking at things like, um, you know, people going on the dark net and just sort of getting into informal so co-parenting agreements with other people. Now that kind of thing is determined by, again, you know, natural conception, right? If, if you say you are and you register, no, it's, it's fine. Um, but if it's under a HF, HFEA license clinic, then um, it depends on, on, on the statute. So again, it goes back to marital status. So if a man is married and his wife has received treatment in a HFEA licensed clinic, that man will be assumed to be the father of the child unless he did not consent to the treatment. So then, you know, consent becomes an issue. If he did consent to the treatment, then it doesn't matter whether donor sperm or whatever was used. The fact that his wife received such treatment and he was married to her, he would be considered legally to be the father. If it's an unmarried couple who received treatment at a HFEA licensed clinic, then the unmarried man could be recognized as the father if certain conditions are satisfied. And the law sets out, um, the statute sets out what those conditions are. So it's, it's to do with consent, you know, making sure that the consent hasn't been withdrawn, that the woman, uh, who has the mother who has given birth to the child, that she consents, um, you know. So the thing about HFEA licensed clinics is they have to make sure these conditions are satisfied. So record keeping and paperwork, so that once the child is born, the people who are supposed to be recognized or who want to be recognized as the child's father, parents, um, is able to show that, look, you know, we have ticked all these boxes, we have had all these consents, they're on paper, we have satisfied the requirements. So motherhood, very easy, right? If you're, if you're pregnant and you've delivered the child, 
in you're the mother. Fatherhood, it really depends on the category you fall in. Kind of found interesting about it is because like how you said, there, there's so many, it's very simple for a mother. You, you carry the child to term, you deliver the child, boom, done. That's it. Very simple. But with fatherhood, there's so many different variables. And I, I've kind of always wondered like how, or maybe why that is, but I think one of the, I mean, there's a number of reasons, but I think one of the reasons too, is just the nature of, I guess, like the biological function when it comes to sex and-, and yes, there are, There's no number of reasons. There is only one reason and you've just said it. It's the natural consequence of the biological makeup of humans, you know, um, with a woman, be, because of how ch you know children are created, pregnancy, it's visual, physical proof, right? Mm -hmm. You can't. Um, and today, of course, today you could have a woman carrying a child which is not genetically related to because medical technology has made it possible. But if you just skip, you know, a few years back, right? And we're talking within this lifetime, there are people. Um, that would not have been possible. If you're pregnant, that's your egg. You know, egg donation, if you look at the history of humans, is something that's very recent. Um, so, so there's never been any question over, you know, maternity, right? If, if you're pregnant, that's your child. I don't know if you've seen this, like, meme that's going around. It's a pretty old meme, you know, by now. Um, but it always appears on, on those page, um List like, um, you know, 25 reasons why I want to get off this planet, you know, 15 reasons, 15 tweets that make you like despair for human life. You know, these lists that come out in, but this person said, like, why don't women have to get like a DNA test to find out whether it's their kid, but men do? And, and then there's that emoji of like, you know, everyone putting their, their head in their hands. Um, but to be fair, this question today could be quite, you know, could be quite relevant. Um, but, but yeah, you know, for hundreds, thousands of years, women did not need any D DNA test. To, it's, it's their child. She's given birth. It's their child. Um, whereas for men, there's always a question mark, you see. Um, a question mark because of, yeah, of how of bi biology, whether, um, of course, there are men who have been deceived, you know, um, but but there's also things like like rape. Um, there, there's things like rape, you know. Um, there are things mm -hmm. like uh, deliberate for. Um, again, back in the time where it, you know you didn't have sperm donation or it was out of reach, um, there might be some women who quietly you know had sex with a man not because they wanted to cheat, but that's the only way they could conceive a child if if their husband was not able to, um, so many reasons, right? Um, and so for men, there's always been a bit of that question mark. And I think that leads to a lot of insecurity in, in men, I guess naturally. Um, this question mark, is, is, is this my child? You know, it should, really shouldn't matter, should it? Um, suppose there's the issue of surnames as well, you know, um, Traditionally, in most in most cultures that I that I know of, that the surname is the takes on the father's surname, um, and and that's possibly a historical evolution of a sign of ownership towards the child. Because how else do you assert your your ownership? You know, I know you shouldn't talk about ownership. We're talking about humans, 
um, perhaps women have, have not felt the need to assert that ownership because that the proof is in, in, in the pudding, you know, that their ownership is it's all over your body, you know, it's, it's a part of you and that's so intrinsic. Whereas I think for men, because there's that step there, there's always that question mark. Society has evolved to, to give them like these signs of ownership. Otherwise, what incentive is there to, to stick around, you know, to protect that child or, or nurture that child? I think it was, I think it was Baroness Hale in one of her judgments she made that, um, and it was to do about name, surname changing as well. Um, something like she challenged, I can't remember it quote, uh, you know, in an exact quote, but it was Baroness Hill, and she said something like, um, "You know, men are very tied to the child's surname." You know, as a, and she said, um, "Women have never been." You know, maybe maybe because we have other ways. Um, you know, we've we've never had the need to be so emotionally tied into into the child having a particular surname. And and when it comes to like matters of of paternity and maternity and. Surrogacy was one of those ones that obviously we, we discuss, man, it's a hot topic. It's a good one, but uh, yes, it you yeah, know, it's getting more mainstream. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I mean, there, there's stories in, uh, like there's stories in the Bible and, and ancient, like, you know, even I know the, yes. the, the Egyptians or uh, one mm-hmm. of those ancient ones where, you know, surrogacy and generally, historically, like ancient history, you'll find that the surrogacy issue come up, um, or the surrogacy topic come up when when it came to uh, like your your religious or or um, political leader, and then they yeah. have you know you have your wife or your queen or whatever. Then, but you'll the the maids or like the people who are like lower status will carry the, yeah. the children, and so the, it's actually a very historic thing. And then, you know, I'm, I think, I mean, celebrities do it all the time. I mean, I think Kim Kardashian had a, a surrogate. Well, she's not, the, yeah, she's not the only one. Um, and I, historically, the lines between surrogacy and adoption were a bit blurred. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, you know, back then, um, and I think I even used the parable from the Bible, I think, um, as, as this, um, where, where if back, back then, if like, you know, rich families and noble families, um, they couldn't have a child, then they could, uh, and, and the problem sort of lies with the wife, you know, um, then they would make an arrangement for the man, uh, the husband, to, to, to sleep with a, a lower status woman, well, who probably didn't have a choice in that matter, I'm not making it sound like, you know, um, she was happy to do so. Um, that should be made to do so, right? And um, they would have a child and that child would just be taken over. Um, so is that surrogacy or is that adoption, forced adoption, right? I suppose you could call it surrogacy because it was intended from the outset, you know, that this child was never going to be the child of this woman who was, who was born him. Um, he was always going to be the child of a separate set, you know, of parents. Um, but in a way, you could consider, I suppose, adoption, we tend to think of it more of um, where the parent like willingly gives the child over to another family. Um, so I suppose, yeah, you know, this, this you could say a, a scenario like that is, and as I'm guessing such a scenario was quite popular back in the past. Uh, 
it's, it's a very fine line between surrogacy and forced forced adoption. Yeah. The, the U.S. Well, first of all, the U.S. is interesting because, well, first of all, I mean, you have federal law, you have state law. I mean, we don't need to get too much into it, but just generally speaking, commercial surrogacy is a thing in certain jurisdictions across. Yeah, a big thing. It, it's yeah. a thing that does exist. Um, but as far as the UK is concerned, it's growing. It's growing in popularity. It's becoming more mainstream. I think if you look at surrogacy the world over, um, it used to be very controversial, right? Um, the early people who did it, like in the 80s, and we had a few big sort of cases across the pond and also here where, where the surrogacy agreement fell to, to, to bits. So Unfortunately, you know, for most people, like sort of in the late 80s, the first time they hear of surrogacy, it was in a very negative context because it's in context of a, a big case where we're in the midst of, of a lot of conflict between the parties because the agreement has fallen apart. So it, it's like, you know, why, why are people getting into this? This all looks very dodgy kind of thing. And then there was a bit more understanding. So it started becoming a bit more mainstream. But be, because it was a bit... You know, the technology was still very new. It was very emerging. Um, it was seen as something like, okay, very niche. So either celebrities, which people kind of dismiss it as like, oh, because they're celebrities and she doesn't want to interrupt her career or lose her figure or, you know, um, and well-to-do gay men who for obvious reasons, you know, need, um, need a surrogate. So it, it was seen as something that was done by the very elite, you know, people who were very well-to-do um, and had reasons why they, they, they could not, you know, conceive naturally. Then it started filtering out more to, um, to like, I would say more mainstream. Um, you have more gay couples who are like coming out, you know, gay, gay marriage. So now they're like, okay, if we can get married, we have a kid, you know. Previously, they might not want to have a kid because if you couldn't get married, then you're thinking like, okay, what happens legally with a child and stuff. So now with more jurisdictions, you know, legalizing like gay marriage or at least becoming more accepting of gay relationships, mm -hmm. gay couples um, feel emboldened um, to, have, to have children, right? So that's, you see an increase in demand there. Um, and from the celebrities, it kind of now filters out more to like the middle classes because they're like, hey, if the celebrities are doing it, it's not something dodgy, right? It's not something strange, you know. Um, then you have these countries that do it on a large scale. India, for one, India was the pioneer in this. And that made it, I think, affordable for um, regular people to, to go to India and, and get it done. And so once it starts becoming more mainstream and, and more accessible, okay, so formally, like something that you would have to do, like in California, like with and pay a lot of money that you could only afford if you're a celebrity, now becomes accessible because you could go to India and, and you know or Ukraine um, and do it at a fraction of the price. So it grows, and then other countries say, "Hey, you know, there's a huge industry in India and Ukraine, for example." So why don't we have this industry in our country? So you get then like agencies setting up because then they see a, a market in this. So there are pros and cons, right? Um, 
it, one of the pros is that it, it normalizes surrogacy. I think in the early days, you know, there's always this sense that you're doing something weird, that you're baby buying or you're baby trafficking. Um, but now that people are more educated about it, they know that it's a transaction, right? And that, um, you know, there are like controls put in place, you know, there are tests that are done. Um, so it's not as sort of hidden. And when something is a bit more transparent, you know, you know people are less judgmental about it, I guess. When it comes to that, like, I think no matter what, and it's also interesting too, like when you, like when it comes to like social issues where it's like, you know, gay marriage used to be so like, no, that's just not acceptable under any circumstance. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, progress, progress, progress. And now not really, I don't think, I mean, at least most people, I mean, no one my age, very, I haven't come across anyone my age who was like, oh my God, it's yeah. just like, yeah, whatever. It's a thing, no big deal. Yeah. Um, but it's funny to like compare other social social issues to each other. And it's like, oh yeah, like that's kind of how it will go. And it's like, not necessarily, because I think with, with surrogacy, because it has to do with birth. I mean, that's like such a, that's literally the most fundamental aspect of what it means to be, you know, to live. And that, that's literally step one aspect of that. And, and so it gets a bit interesting yeah. in that sense. I don't think there's so much of a social aspect anymore. Um, I'm, I'm not sure these days, well, just talking about the environment we, li we lived in, um, like in England, if you said you had a child by surrogacy, I don't think anyone's going to look at you sideways in, in the sense that you've done something dodgy. Um, they know what it is. They know how it works. You know, they know that this is just another sort of growing way to have a child. Um, I think there are some people who disagree with it morally, right? And, and that's, that's a, a whole different kettle of fish altogether. But I, but, but I don't think anyone's going to look at it sideways like, oh, you've done something that is that's out of the ordinary. So I think surrogacy has reached that point of mainstreamness where it's, yeah, it's there. And now I think the debate has moved on to is, you know, should it be there? Is it right or wrong, right? So we are no longer looking at it as something that is suspicious. I think we all know how surrogacy works um, and we have faith in it, you know, that, that it's not something dangerous. Um, and of course, there are different types of surrogacy and unregulated, it can become dangerous, of course. Unregulated, it can. Um, but the concept of it, I don't think is strange. But I do know that there's some debate over whether this concept, ethically, morally, should hold any water. Commercializing it. And then that's yeah. like the next level of the, of the discussion. And so maybe kind of talk about that a little bit. Uh, surrogacy arrangements or contracts uh, in the UK or you know England, how is that mm -hmm. handled by the court? Or first of all, I mean, what what is a, maybe you can just tell us what is a surrogacy agreement or contract? Just tell us what that is. And then how are those handled by the yeah. court? So a surrogacy agreement is an agreement that a woman will carry the, a child for the purposes of, um, handing the child over to the intended parents. Uh, people use different words. Some people say commissioning parents, and that's, that's um, you know, that's frowned upon I, um, because commissioning sounds like you're like, it's an object, you're commissioning 
like a product or something. So that's negative. Um, the preferred word these days would be intended parents. So the surrogate, ideally, right, the surrogate would go into this willingly. Um, she knows that, you know, she will be carrying a child, that she will be giving away at the point of birth to the intended parents. She would understand that her role is simply to gestate and deliver the child and that she's not supposed to play, um, you know, any kind of parental role towards the child. Um, and so that, in a nutshell, would be a surrogacy agreement. So there are two types of surrogacy agreement. One is the altruistic, which is to be where the surrogate is doing this out as, as a gift, as a favor to the intended parents. Um, so generally you would find um, this kind of agreements, altruistic agreements, it would be a family member of the intended parents, like a sister or mother, um, uh, a, a cousin, you know, who would be willing to do that to help out the intended parents, right? Uh, a friend, a close friend, that's happened before as well. Um, so they're not doing it for any gain on their part, other than like emotional gain. You feel good helping someone, right? Um, and, you know, they're doing it just purely, you know, to, to do a favor, to give a gift. Then there's commercial surrogacy, where the surrogate is financially uh, compensated for her, her, her role in this, to gestate the child, which, of course, you know, takes physical, you know, uh, 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 a contribution on her part to deliver the child, right? Um, you know, so so she's providing a paid for service. Now, of course, emotionally, she still might get um, uh, pleasure or satisfaction in it, in the sense that she's helped someone, but that would not be her main motive for the surrogacy. It would be motivated by commercial profit that, that should be paid for it, you know, and compensated for her service. So these are the two types of surrogacy agreements. What they have in common is the idea that you're carrying this child not for you, it will be handed over to the intended parents. So the UK recognizes, um, well, um, they do not outlaw surrogacy of any kind. Okay, so they said, if you want to get into a surrogacy agreement, that's up to you, go for it. What they will not do is regulate or enforce any kind of surrogacy agreement. So if it goes south, you're on your own, right? We do not have any laws that are designed to resolve a surrogacy conflict. So if you go to court, the judges will try to use laws from, they will use laws like from family breakdown, you know, um, adoption, for, for example, right? But these are not laws that were designed to resolve a surrogacy dispute. And that's what we don't have here. Commercial surrogacy is outlawed um, in the sense that uh, middlemen. So if you're a company and you like create, you know, a, a company where you say, hey, I'm going to recruit surrogates and, and I'm going to get like intended parents and, and I'm going to introduce them to each other. And for that, I'll take a cut, etc. Now that is illegal. Right. But if you as an intended parents, meet a surrogate and you offer her like 50 grand, you know, for her to carry your child, um, the law doesn't actually outlaw that, right? They don't penalize the individual. What they do penalize is the agencies, right? So if you set up a profit-making business to facilitate commercial surrogacy, that's outlawed. 
Um, so this gives people a lot of confusion. It's a lot of confusion. So is sur the question that students also, is surrogacy legal or not? The way it's legal in a sense that you're not going to go to jail if you do it, you know, so have a crack, you know, go ahead, do it. Um, but in another sense, it's not legal in the sense that if you run into trouble, you can't look at the law to resolve this problem. Right? You can go to court and the court will try to use some other laws to resolve it. Probably not to your satisfaction because they were not designed to address this issue. And herein then lies, you know, um, where all the debate about surrogacy has come about. Because UK couples who then want to have uh, a child by surrogate are placed in a really uncertain position. It's like, okay, you know, what we're doing is not wrong, but if we run into trouble, the law doesn't have adequate recourse to help us. And we have to take the risk that the decision um, might not go in our favor, or it might give us a, a solution that is not satisfactory. There's a compromise solution, which is, which is not what we want. We want what we came for, which is, you know, the child. Um, so because of this uncertainty, um, UK couples who can afford it will prefer to go to a jurisdiction where commercial surrogacy is tightly regulated, you know, where there are rules in place because they want that certainty, um, which is fine, except that you're just exporting the problem to other countries. So I think it's a bit hypocritical by saying, well, you know, we are too good for commercial surrogacy. Um, we feel that there are ethical issues involved that we don't want in our country. So feel free to fly to other countries and, you know, get involved with it there. So either it's ethical enough for you to do it here or it isn't. That, that's why I think, you know, there shouldn't be this half-hearted um, solution. So if commercial surrogacy is something that as a state, you know, we decide is ethical and it's something that we don't see it as being wrong, it can be done, then let it be done here and let it be regulated with laws that have been passed by parliament here. And there's so many cases where, I remember one case in particular, just because it was such a, it was the, the facts were so ridiculous. One of the worst cases we had in domestic law, um, I think they called it a cautionary tale. But you see, this is what happens when you don't have legally regulated commercial surrogacy. Um, either you have to go abroad where it is very expensive. So the ideal place for most people to go is California because they have sort of, in terms of commercial surrogacy, the most regulated, um, what they consider advanced laws, but it's also very expensive. So if you can't afford California, you know, then you have to look at maybe like Ukraine, you know, uh, Nepal, um, some other places, right? So that, in the eyes of some people, that's sort of second tier. And, I, and you see, I'm very uncomfortable with all this language because we are dealing with human beings. That shouldn't be first tier and second tier, but that's what it is. That's how people think about it. Now, if you can't even afford um, second tier, then you resort to this. You go on the dark web, right? Or word of mouth, a friend of friend or whatever. And it turned, it, you get people who are desperate. And people who are desperate are people who are not in very good situations. Chaotic lifestyles, poor choices, poor decision-making. 
And that leads to the kind of, well, horrendous or cautionary tale that we have seen. Well, and, and when people are desperate, that's the, the breeding ground for exploitation. I mean, that, that's about, course, that's how it works. Course. Yeah, it's, it's all exploitation because again, desperation has different levels of desperation. It's all relative, you know, in, in a very like, like a first world country, you know, in California, you might have surrogates who are desperate for, um, you know, like going back to school, you know, or paying off their house, right? Or, or getting a bigger house, okay? But, but they're not desperate in the sense that they're starving on the streets, you know. Um, but then if you have a country like India, for example, desperation could mean the difference between um, your children actually having, having a roof over their heads, you know, or, or being able to go to school. So like desperation in the States might be a choice between like private school or, you know. So it's all relative, yeah. The tale that the case you're talking about um, they gave her a sum of money. It was a couple of grand, you know. They didn't even reach five figures. And some of the things they gave her, like they topped up her, her mobile phone um, card, you know, so it was like, a so you can see in this case how, how desperate she was that just little things like, you know, topping up her mobile phone plan. And, um, and you really have to ask yourself, you know, is this the kind of woman who should be a surrogate? Because... If, if you need, you know, like 20, 20 pounds to top up your mobile phone plan, she's in a very bad situation. So how can her choice be a free choice? And you have to ask yourself, how did she come to be in that state? And um, again, you know, if she's in that state as a result of possibly previous trauma or um, abuse or um, control by someone else that she, she doesn't, you know, have choices or is unable to exercise good choices, then mentally should she be put through this? Because um, having a child is not just physical, it's also mental. Well, and especially too, like, I mean, it's getting a little more specific, but even, you know, th there also are risks to having a child. It it's not just something that you can do and you have to worry about. I mean, you can have complications during the pregnancy, during the delivery. You can have postpartum depression, which is... yeah devastating i mean so yeah. you know it, it's it's not as oh yeah you just have a kid and whatever it's fine like no no no. like there actually are still things that you have to be concerned about especially from a uh when you're analyzing things from a legal perspective too i mean they're all things that you have to consider at, at least i mean the weight of them is up for debate but they still need to be considered at, at some level it is extremely um risky um surrogates in commercial surrogacy, surrogates um, are chosen. They they have to be already be mothers. They all they have to have already given birth, live birth, because they have to demonstrate that they are able to successfully carry a child to term. So all surrogates are already mothers uh, of children. You know, well, their children may not be with them, but they would have given birth to live children at least. This is one of the criteria. I think in any country that has commercial surrogacy, when they screen their surrogates, they must already have had previously had at least one live successful birth. Um, and most of them are would be mothers. They would have a number of children. So the implication, I mean, if something goes wrong, you know, and, and the surrogate is uh, permanently disabled, she loses her life, it doesn't just impact her, it also impacts her children. 
And I think that's a very strong, how do you square that ethically? I think last year we there was an article, um, well, I'm sure she's not the only one, but it's the one that stuck in my mind. Michelle Reeves from California, well, there you go, San Diego, um, died during childbirth uh, while acting as a surrogate for the second time. She leaves behind her husband and two children who have now started a GoFundMe, you know, to try and um, get money. So she, yeah. So two children have lost their mom, you know, and she was doing this because she needed money and money which she'll now never have. And again, you know, um, surrogacy agreements, um, I have to ask, okay, so if the surrogate dies during childbirth and doesn't successfully, I don't know in the case of Michelle Reese whether she successfully delivered the child and she died or the child died with her in childbirth. Um, but let's say the worst case scenario, the surrogate, something goes horribly wrong and the surrogate dies and the baby doesn't make it. Does she still get paid? Or do the intended parents say, well, hang on, you know, we contracted for a live birth. And I'm sorry, but that's a very distasteful question. But I think it's a question you have to think about. Oh, absolutely. And, and also it, it becomes a, in a way, it almost becomes like a tort issue. It's like, well, do you get compensate? Like if you get into a car crash, you can, you know, there's avenues to, to seek some type of remedy for that. And then, well, do you treat like, you know, you talk about distasteful. It's like, yeah. Do, do you treat a, a woman dying in the process of childbirth? Well, now her family, you know, do they get some type of damages? Is that like, it's all. I mean, I Ideally, in a commercial, then that's one of the reasons why somebody, um, proponents of commercial surrogacy say, that's why we need commercial surrogacy, so that all of these can be hammered out in the contract, you know, before anything starts, right? So if, okay, so if you were six months pregnant and you had a miscarriage, you get X amount because, you know, it's still taken a toll in your body, it's still, you know, you've done something. Um, if you've gone to nine months and you've delivered and something goes wrong in delivery and, you know, what happened? Okay, you get X amount. If you die in delivery, but the child survives, you get, you know, X amount. If you die and the child dies, you get X amount. But do we really want to be sitting there with lawyers across the table? And okay, what's the value then? So if she dies, what's what's the value on her life then? 50,000, 60,000. So is that what a woman's life is worth? 60, so now we have a figure for what a woman's life is worth. I think that's a very dangerous road we are going down. If you can put a dollar figure on what a woman's life is worth to say, well, if you provide this service and you die, this is what you'll get. I, I think I'm very uncomfortable by saying, you know, someone's life is worth this. You know, someone in, a, in a, what we call a second tier country will say, well, you know, over here, lifespan is this, income level is this. So here, if the surrogacy dies giving birth, it's only X amount, which to me then makes me really uncomfortable because then women in one country or, you know, are privileged or their lives are privileged or valued more than women in another country. And that's, to me, that's just going down, it, to me, it's disgusting, it's a disgusting road. Um, but then, okay, if you don't contract for all this and something does go wrong, then what happens? You know, go for me, I mean, Oof. it's just not the solution yeah because i think that's true because like even, even you saying like yeah now now they have a gofundme that feels uncomfortable too like it, it just it doesn't really matter where you go it's just different levels of ugh. you know it's it's just hard to hard to deal with i think we 
with the media, we see all these cases of successful surrogacy. And to be fair, you know, surrogacies are, most of them, a lot of them are successful. And we see these happy pictures. And we see like gay couples having their family complete and celebrities with glossy magazines. Um, we don't consider when things go wrong. And maternal death, I mean, I think we are very privileged over here. And, you know, things like maternal death is something that we associate with like third world countries, like in the, in the jungle in Malawi, where women are miles from a local hospital and they die. And we think, no, it's not going to happen here in the middle of London. You know, their hospital's just at the doorstep. But maternal death is still a very real thing. And even if it's not death, there are a lot of things can go wrong with, um, with giving birth, like blood loss, emergency hysterectomies. So you might not necessarily die, but you could lose your womb, you know. You, you could lose a lot of blood, um, there could be damage, um, so many things, right? I mean, you know, complications. I mean, it's just terrifying. I mean, Serena Williams like almost died giving birth. And Serena Williams is like a top athlete, an elite athlete. You would think she would be in the best shape of her life, you know, physically, access to the best healthcare, you know, because of her status. And, and she almost died giving birth. No one is exempt. You could be the healthiest, strongest person, you know, with the best doctors. The human body, you just don't know. It's a very risky thing. Um, so, yeah, you know, with, with surrogacy, there's always these questions. So the same pro proponents for commercial surrogacy who says, well, shouldn't we then, you know, go full force and commercialize it so that all these details can be hammered out in the beginning, um, yes, you know, that's logical, that's entirely logical. But then you find yourself having to sit down at the table and starting to put dollar figures to, to, to things. And I'm not sure you could put dollar figures on the price of birth, you know, um, and on the price of a woman and, and a woman's body, just very uncomfortable. It reminds a bit of a tangent, but it reminds me of there, there's a TV show called The Boys. I don't know if you've heard of that program but it's uh it's an amazon amazon what's well, really good one um people want to check that out but it's it's basically uh like if superheroes were like real so it's kind of like the act like if they actually were real and kind of the thing things that go on with them but all the superheroes they're they're they got a lot of demons so they're not like these picturesque right. people they, they got some couple of them got yeah. serious issues so yeah getting into that but but the the show bit of not really a spoiler alert it's like the first scene or whatever but essentially there's a guy he's out with his girlfriend and then uh she basically gets killed accidentally by one of the superheroes and uh anyway then then the you know they have a whole legal team for for the superheroes you know they got the whole mm -hmm. pr and the, everything it's quite quite interesting and so they basically go to this guy and he's a young guy, he's in his twenties or whatever. And I can't remember the figure, but it was, it was insane. It was like, oh, you know, so for, for your girlfriend, you know, there's a, you know, you gotta sign a non-disclosure. And the, the figure was like 16,000 or 8,000. It was like crazy, crazy, crazy low. And, and then anyway, of course the guy freaks out and, you know, is, is justifiably angry about that. But you know, just kind of more generally speaking, yeah, it's one of those things that you don't think about. And then when, when you have to assign a, a dollar figure to something that you're trying to assign a, a something that's tangible to something that's intangible. I mean, how do you yeah. put it? 
price tag on birth or, or life or death. I mean, it's just, it's just one of those yeah. things that's inherently um, difficult. And then, oh, course, you know, there's the alternative argument. I mean, there's a school of thought that says, hang on, why is it, you know, that anything that women do is always seen as priceless, you know, you can't put a price on motherhood, you can't put a price on a mother's love. And their argument, and this is quite funny, and their argument is that it's, um, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying I, I agree with it, but you know, their argument is that it's actually part of the patriarchy designed to keep women down by falsely complimenting women, by saying, look, the things that women do, which come out of care is, is so, you know, invaluable, is so great, is so pure, that we can't do anything so vulgar, like put a price on it. So therefore women do all this and just not get paid. You bet if a man was giving birth, he would put a dollar figure on it and it would be high. And he would have no qualms about, you know, going, you know, 500 grand for me to do that, you know, before I would even think about it. Um, yeah, and he wouldn't be shy about it. He wouldn't go, oh, well, there's no prize, you know. On it. Um, and in a way that is true. You know, we say things like, oh, you know, what, what can we pay a stay-at-home mom? You, you can love your children. It's nothing better than a mother's love. Oh, well, you're doing it for free, you know. And that's why these kinds of roles tend to get devalued because people think, oh, well, you know, if it's something that it could be done for free anyway, it's not something that's skilled, right? It's not something that's highly valued. So all this talk about, well, what can, how can we put a price on something as pure and as, you know, as birth and um, so, well, women are supposed to do it for free and just take pleasure in the fact that you've, you know, given someone a huge gift, you know, and, and you know, sort of pat herself on the shoulder. Um, so that will work out really well, isn't it? Really well for everyone, except the woman that's doing all the donkey work. Um, so yeah, the alternative school of thought is, no, no, we should start talking dollar figures and it should be bloody high. You know, it should be way up there. It should be something that is so expensive and so exclusive that only those who can pay and who can meet that value should be able to do that. Um, which is fine, okay, but whenever something's very exclusive and people see a profit in it, um, there's always going to be that knockoff, right? There's always going to be, hey, but we, we can give you something like that at a cheaper price. And it's, I, I, what I, I think with your class, I still use the example, I always say it's stuff like, like couture and, you know, like fast fashion is couture and sweatshop clothes, right? Like couture is so expensive because they've got like, seamstress in Milan and Paris who have been to school for years who, who put a price on their skills and you know it's handmade and and they work for like one atelier and and, and they are in demand and one dress could cost I don't know 50,000 pounds like a Christian Dior couture original could, could go up to that price um, and of course none of us unless you are some you know really could afford that but we want that because it's it's aspirational we want that so then you get like your Primark or whatever, who, who does, you know, a reasonable copy of the design for, for 50 pounds, less maybe. Um, and you go, okay, you know, with the right style, yeah, I could sort of pass off with that, you know. Um, that's not done by someone who is working, you know, union rules with protection, with uh, rights at work. It's made in a sweatshop somewhere where, you know, they are paid pennies, um, not given breaks. 
again, this goes back to sex, the, the difference between the sexes, I believe. Um, you look at it in employment as well. Women, women tend to feel like in, in like contract negotiations, like for a job, women tend to like, okay, what will you pay me? And they're like, should I ask for more? Are they going to reject me? Am I going to look like, you know, um, where, where does men come up with a figure? <laughs> yeah. And that's how men negotiate higher salaries, right? They're like, yeah, I'll just give this figure. And if they can't do it, I'll negotiate from them. And sometimes the company actually has a higher figure in mind. And, you know, they're like, okay, we'll do it. Whereas women are like, okay, well, what do you, you know, you start. Um, so maybe, yeah, you know, you should adopt that attitude and say, right, okay, if I'm going to do this and it's a difficult thing and there's a lot of risk involved, um, yeah, I'm going to state my price and, and um, you know, so that's commercial surrogacy. But um, I don't know. I mean, I have, I was saying before we started the podcast, like my views on commercial on surrogacy in general, but especially commercial surrogacy, has changed. Um, I used to think that's fine. You know, it's it's a contract. Um, it, two two people going to it, it open eyes. You know, it's it's fine. You negotiate. Um, in a certain way, I, I used to think it was empowering for women as well. Um, if you look at India, which was one of which was the pioneer for commercial surrogacy, um, you know, a lot of Indian women were saying that with this, they managed to buy land that secured their future because they could do like small subsistence farming. Some of them have opened up like a small shop, you know, like small businesses, uh, put their children to school. Um, some of them said that, you know, they even now gain status in, in India, which is a very patriarchal um, country, still patriarchal culture. Some of them have gained status because now they, they earn more than their husband with one big lump sum. Uh, they've now bought land and they're landowners and they've got like more status than their, than their husbands. Um, so in that sense, yes, it did empower these, these individual women were empowered. Can't take that away from them. Uh, and, you know, so, yeah, but these past two years, I think thinking about it a bit more deeply, more critically, reading more about it, I've changed my view. I, I think sur surrogacy and especially commercial surrogacy is, to me, is anti-feminist. It's treating the woman's body as, you know, a, a mere, it's reducing it to a mere service is saying that you can buy rights and space in a woman's body, that you can pay money for that. And, and I fundamentally disagree with that. And as much as it is empowering on an individual level for like women in certain countries, for women as a whole is not empowering. It isn't. It's saying that the only way you can make money is to make use of your intrinsic biological function. It's going back again to this, you know, that's the one thing that's unique to us. And that's the one thing to make money from. I mean, if there's poverty in these countries, then I think the efforts should be made into eradicating that poverty and educating them so that they don't have to use, you know, their, their bodies. Um, and of course, there's the risk, right, to them, to their children. Um, if it works out well, that's great. They buy land, you know, they look after their children. If it doesn't work out well, their children are left motherless in a country where there's abject poverty. I mean, that's terrifying. It's, so I don't, yeah, 
you know, it's commercialized. I think there's also a race component involved. If it's such a great gift, then why aren't like rich, you know, Western women doing it for, I'm sure there are poor women in India or Nepal or Ukraine um, who, who are infertile and who can't have children. So if it's such a great gift, why doesn't like a rich professional woman in America say, okay, I'll carry a child for this poor woman in India who can't have one. It doesn't ever work the other way around. So it, it is something that, you know, is born of privilege, right? And it goes back to my original argument, um, is desperation. You can say, oh, it's freely agreed. But how can it be freely agreed when someone is doing it for, for money? I mean, desperation has different levels, right? Like I said, maybe in, in California, it's the difference between like private school for your kid or regular school. But in a, you know, another country, it could be the difference between no school and food, not to mention private or, or any other kind. But it's all desperation. It's all, I'm, I wouldn't be doing this, but for that oh. cash. To say the same of any other job, I guess, you know, would you be doing your job, but for that cash? But I just think surrogacy is a lot more invasive. Would I be lecturing, but for the money? I mean, if I won the lottery, I put my feet up, you know, so yeah, all our jobs, we're doing it for some kind of compensation. Um, but lecturing a class, you know, and sharing, you know, my thoughts and discussing stuff with a class is not as invasive as carrying someone's child in my body with the risks that goes along with it. Not to mention the mental toll of giving up that child, right? We don't know mentally how it affects the surrogate. That when it comes to breeding animals, um, puppies, for example, we are not supposed to take puppies away from their mothers until they're at least 12 weeks old. So for animals, we recognize that you do not separate the newborn from birth from their mother. So I think it's quite strange that with humans, we say, oh, fine, you give birth, out you go, here's my baby. And that's an interesting, that's an interesting comparison because that, that makes me think of, okay, we, we, we're very, um, we understand that you, you wouldn't take a, a puppy away from, from its mother at a, for a certain period of time. But we don't bat an eye at euthanizing a pet. And yet when it comes to euthanizing people, you know, it's very interesting how, you know. Strange, what we, yeah, what, which parts of human lives we, we value or um, it's at the, um, I was just reading this forum the other day. It was so funny. Um, this woman was saying, I live next to a dairy farm. And like, you know, the past few nights, it's just been horrible. The cows have just been moving and moving. I don't know if it's the heat or whatever. And somebody said, if it's a dairy farm, it's probably because the calves have been taken away and they're screaming for them. And you think, oh yeah, of course, isn't it? Of course, they are screaming if, if their calves have been taken away from them. Yeah. There's been research done. And again, you know, this is medical research. So I haven't read too much into it. So um, in terms of being able to speak to its credibility, but there's emerging research done now about what we call the fourth trimester. Um, so as you know, where the child gestates, you, it's you know three trimesters, right? So it's three monthly. So it's the first three months, the second, and then the third trimester is the nine month where you then deliver the child. So there's been emerging research now done on what is known as the fourth trimester. And the fourth trimester is the three months after the birth. 
where the child bonds with the mother. Um, and they've done some you know, research and tests on this to show that even newborn children recognize things like voice and scent of the woman who has carried them. Right, they instinctively like you know they were doing things like they've taken the baby and then they put like a, the, the mother's shirt or so, and you know instinctively it turns to the scent, it starts burrowing, and this was done with human babies. Recognition in terms of brain waves when you know they hear the mother's voice. Um, so even though the child may not be genetically the mother's, in the sense they could be someone's egg, the fact that it was in her womb and it was connected to her through the umbilical cord, you know, etc., feeding of the research on the fourth trimester suggests that some kind of, of bond is formed in that physical environment and that they do recognize scents, smells, etc. Um, and if that is just taken away at, at the point of birth, the baby doesn't have the essential bonding of security. Okay, like, like I said, um, this is emerging research, and because I'm not, you know, in medical research, I cannot speak for the credibility of these studies in terms of sample sizes and et cetera. But if there's any truth to that, right? If there's any truth and credibility to that, then child's welfare comes into play here. Because if you're separating that child and there's a possibility that it could cause trauma to the child at such an early stage in his life, then all ethical issues about women or feminism, let's put that aside, is unethical for that child. Well, and, and I've heard of that. I've heard of that fourth trimester uh, research, and it, I'll give the same disclaimer as you. I haven't really looked into it very deeply. Yeah. But related to that, um, I've come across some research that even with romantic partners, you know, separate but related to this, um, there's actually, of course, it happens, uh, you know, below the conscious level because it's a chemical thing or a hormonal thing. That's the thing. They're saying it's conscious. It's yeah. subconscious and, level, yeah. And I'm pretty sure that the, the term uh, or the expression seven-year itch, uh, you know, when it comes to couples, I'm pretty sure that's where that comes from because over a period of time, that connection to your partner, uh, you know, in a, in a romantic sense, that, that, chemical, that chemical change occurs after seven years where it becomes less powerful. Um, yeah. Again, this is a very general uh, statement, but go go research it for yourself. Uh, you know, if you if you find yeah, it. Yeah, so I've heard about that. They said seven years is the defining mark because that's when that chemical reaction fades, and you start seeing all the flaws. You know, and some couples survive that, and some don't. Right, and if you survive that, that probably means it's quite a strong relationship because you've seen the person for the flaws without you know sort of rose tinted glasses, and you still accept them and like them the way they are. But for some couples, yeah, after seven years and you find that that chemical reaction wears off. In fact, seven years is a long time for a chemical reaction to last. <laughs> it wears off and then you're like, really this? <laughs> yeah, but jokes aside, I mean, if, if you know, there's, a, there's credibility and there's truth in, in this, then we have to really consider, are you causing trauma to children at a very early age in their life? And if it's caught trauma at such a sub, you know, um, subconscious level, it's trauma that lingers and perhaps the child even grows up not even knowing, you know, what the cause of the trauma is or how it affects them in certain ways. Um, in terms of the children and 
always tell my students, I said, you know, there are different ways that you can look at surrogacy. You can look at it from sort of the feminist ethical point of view, which is to look at the position of the surrogate and say, you know, it, this is wrong. Um, but since we are doing child law, right, um, maybe it's better that we look at it from the position of the child because that's our perspective in this module. Um, are there ethical issues there as well, right? So again, this is something that we need to look at long-term, you know, long-term studies. How do children who are born from surrogacy arrangements feel? Um, and there was an Australian documentary that I saw and they interviewed some uh, children and there were some of them who said they actually feel bad about it. They feel like they were purchased. And again, that has caused problems with identity. Um, and they said, you know, but for the fact, like at the end of the day, like I love my parents and I know my parents love me or whatever, but, but for the fact that they paid, I wouldn't be here. So I am the product of money, of a payment. Um, some children have struggled with it um, worse, especially if they were the product of surrogacy where the genetic material was donated. So they have so many questions. They're like, who was the woman who carried me? Then who was the woman who gave the egg that created me? And who was the man who, you know, who gave the sperm? Um, so there was confusion on so many levels. I think children who were born from surrogate where it was the genetic material of the parents, but physically they just couldn't be carried, perhaps there's less struggle because you know that you know, genetically, yes, I am related to them. It's just that another woman carried me. Um, but yeah, if, but if it was like a double whammy, kind of thing um really the question marks for those children was like well you bought sperm you know you bought this you bought. so I am just a product of you matching different bits together and I think that that could affect the child that it, it may it may not we don't know right so have we thought about this from the child's perspective how this impacts the child growing up so let's put the surrogate the surrogate out of the picture, you know, let's not talk about it from a feminist point of view. Let's look at it from a child welfare point of view. There, there, are, there are a lot of question marks over whether this would be healthy for the child. Now, some people say, well, okay, well, these are very similar issues in adoption. And we don't. And I say, well, yes, because in adoption, the child is already here. And for some reason or other, you know, the child can't grow up with their biological family and they have to be adopted. And I'm not saying there's no trauma with that. There is trauma and children who are adopted do struggle. Um, so why create children and put them in a situation where they may, you know, there is a likelihood that they may have questions or struggle with their identity and create trauma? It just doesn't make sense, right? From a child's welfare perspective. So... For adoption, at least you can say, I'm doing it for the child, right? Here's a child, but I'm adopting the child. When you enter into a surrogacy agreement, and I know this is going to be really controversial, and I don't, you know, on your podcast, I'm sorry, it's selfish. It is selfish. It's because you want a child, Right? And I'm not saying you love the child any less. People say, oh, how, how dare you say it's selfish? Like as if it's a slur, you know? And it's not. It's not. You know, I'm not, and I'm not saying that reduces the love we have for a child or it makes you a bad parent because people get really, take it personal, they get defensive. It's not. 
But you have to admit it is selfish. It's because you wanted to bring up a child. Right? As is for birth, really, it's because you wanted to bring up a child. No child asked to be born. Um, and so you created this. So admit that, own it, own it. Own it and say, yes, you know, I was selfish. I wanted this, so I did this. And own your decision. And if that decision later on in life causes that child trauma, you have to own it and be there for them and help them like get through it. But to just say, oh, you know, it's all going to be perfect and roses and the child is going to be perfectly fine and it's never going to cause them any harm. I don't think we can say that. I don't think, you know, that, like I said, the research is just quite emerging. Um, and of course, then again, you have the terrible cases that we see on the news where, um, like for example, and this was the case that actually shut down um, surrogacy in India. We, there, there were a few cases where the intended parents didn't get the child that they wanted. So either like a disability or um, was twin birth or whatever. They didn't want. So they just abandoned the child on the street. They walked out of the surrogacy clinic and abandoned the, the baby and infant on the streets of India, Mumbai. And it was a few cases that, that happened and protests by charities and, and ministers. And that was when India um, prohibited, you know, because of the outcry, um, commercial surrogacy. And they haven't, they haven't lifted the ban yet. It's still being debated. The wheels move slow in India. Um, but now in India, um, only altruistic surrogacy is allowed. They said they'll review the ban on commercial surrogacy. Um, we had a terrible case in Thailand where the Australian intended parents, um, the baby, it was a twin birth and the baby boy was disabled. So they just took the girl and they left the baby boy with the Thai surrogate, who is like a woman living in a very impoverished circumstances, who now, you know, has another mouth to feed, a disabled child, a child with special needs, um, in addition to her own children, which is why she was doing this in the first place. Um, so these are your clear-cut examples of um, people who actually really looked at the child as a product. I'm not saying every intended parent does this, but there is, it, it's not a lie to say that surrogacy, commercial surrogacy, can lead to some intended parents looking at the child as a product. Right? Again, it doesn't apply to all, but these are examples of some. And to what makes it worse, I think the Australian case of the baby Gammy, they took the girl who was uh, to them, you know, who was the, the, the man, the intended father, had um, convictions for child sex offenses towards girl children. Yeah, of course he did. <laughs> yes, yes, and now he has a girl child that he has created, not related to him, that he has taken back, the perfect little daughter i find that terrifying well and the reason that's terrifying too is because people can go look up the statistics on it i don't i don't want to quote the number because i don't remember the number but when it comes to the risk percent wise of a child being sexually abused by a non-biological parent yeah astronomically higher then it is a biological related meal absolutely and especially when you tie in a, a history, you know, criminal yeah. history. history. Convictions, not accusation, convictions. 
which meant that he went up to a court of law and there was sufficient evidence to convict. Um, yeah. Um, the recent case last year was all over the news, actually, very controversial in China. A very popular, um, like famous um, Chinese actress, she was caught like on recorded. Um, she, China, surrogacy is banned in China. Um, so she entered into a surrogacy agreement in the States. Oh, by the way, um, the growing market for surrogacy in the States is Chinese um, people, Chinese couples. Yeah, the middle-class Chinese couples actually are now like the growing uh, consumers of surrogacy in the United States um, because surrogacy is banned there, right? So they go to the States um, they, and, and so she did. She had, um, she had two children by surrogates. So she had two different surrogates, right? Each having a baby. Um, and then she broke up with her boyfriend and she just, and she didn't want them anymore. And the surrogate, like one was seven months and one was eight months. And she was throwing a complete tantrum because they wouldn't abort. Yeah, they, they wouldn't abort a, a child at seven and eight months into the pregnancy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. how dare they? And, <laughs> oh my God. Abortion is possible, I guess, but you really have to question, you know, aborting a child where there's no medical complications or, I mean, I know sometimes we have late term abortions because of medical reasons and, and you know, I have absolutely no um, quarrel with that, you know. I think there's a stage where it comes where it's no longer an abortion. It's it's a, a life, you know, it's a, it's a birth and it's, it's still, when it comes to serious medical reasons, you know, there's, there's no, and I'm sure nobody takes it lightly at that stage. You know, if somebody does it, it's, it's usually because something very tragic has, has happened, but simply because it's no longer convenient for you to do so. Now that to me is very wrong, especially since you created the situation where they came about in the first place. Um, and the language was used. I mean, if you go on Google, you can see it was really controversial um, last year, early this year, in fact. Um, she was screaming, shouting. She was like, I, you know, I don't want them. You know, I don't see why they can't do that. This is just an inconvenience to me. Um, you know, she was just going on and on. And the language that she used was really dehumanizing. Um, these were just things to her where, when it was convenient and it was like a boost to her career. Um, you know, she wanted them. And now that she had broken up with a boyfriend or something like that, she didn't want them anymore because it, it would be a hindrance. Um, and because it was recorded, I don't know who leaked it. So it went viral. And it it just like hit, you know, the Chinese, like Chinese people were completely re repulsed by it. They were really angered, um, you know, as they should be, I guess, right? The, the, the attitude. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And like even the Communist Party of China released a statement and, you know, um, and it hit like Western press, you know, and she is cancelled, basically, right? She's completely cancelled, like her career is over, like she, the, the TV shows that she was on, like they stopped running, they stopped filming, they're like, okay, you're out, like all her billboards were like overnight, like, you know, taken down, um, like, you know, all the brands, I think she was like working with Gucci or something, some, some brands, you know, like immediately, like they dropped her, um, and as you know, like the Chinese market is huge for these kinds of things for like movies, designer goods. And so, you know, once they decide to cancel you, like you, you know, that's it, you know, you're, you're really over. I can't say I feel too sorry for her. Nope. Right? <laughs> because I think having a child is not something that you should do lightly, 
But therein lies the danger again, where surrogacy becomes normalized, then you have this sort of like product thinking where, you know, um, how is it going to help my image as a celebrity, um, you know, as, uh, and things like that, then yeah, you, you, you start seeing the child and, and the whole experience as a product, as something that is part of, you know, something to Instagram, something a journey, something to talk about. Um, and that, that goes down a dangerous road, again, from the child welfare point of view, right? So there are a few different ways to argue this. I tell, um, I, I tell the students, um, my first angle was the feminist point of view, but, I, but some students were like, okay, but, you know, we shouldn't be making it a feminist issue, right? Sometimes it's empire. So yeah, there are two ways you can think about that. Um, so let's look at it from a child welfare point of issue. And that's where I see the light coming on in a lot of students' eyes, especially when you use live examples like this. Um, and I'm not saying that these represent the majority of people in surrogacy agreements. Absolutely not. Okay, Most people in surrogacy agreements like are desperate for their kids and love their children and they're absolutely precious. Um, but even one is too many. you know. And do we want to create a situation where commercial surrogacy commodifies children and this attitude starts to grow. And, and that's when I see the light coming on in a lot of students' eyes, especially when we discuss things like the fourth trimester. You know, I say, well, let's think about that. If there's truth in that, then we are creating trauma from the start of the child's life. Why, why are we doing that, you know, from the child's welfare? Um, so, yeah, to recognize that, you know, it's selfish, I think, but to own it, you know, to own it as well and to say, well, if I take this decision, I have to own it. If 20 years down the road, I get some uncomfortable questions from my child and my child's struggling with the identity, I have to face up to it and, and, and work through it with my child. And if they have blame, I have to take that blame because I created this situation. Now, if you are able you know, and, and honest with yourself and do all that, then I guess that's fine. But to pretend and, and say, oh, that no problems will arise, right? It's, it's perfectly fine. You can do this and the children will be happy. There are no dangers in this. I, I, I don't think that's quite right, you know? So for me, when it comes to surrogacy, I always tell the students, this is my opinion. You don't have to agree with it at all, right? You know, I'm not trying. I don't, I don't agree with it. Whether it's commercial or altruistic, I just don't. Um, just think, you know, and 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 I've had friends who have struggled with um, struggled with fertility, and I I don't say people go, oh well, you you don't have kids, you don't want kids, so it's very easy for you to say that, you know. Um, no, but I've seen friends who have struggled struggled with fertility, and and I know it can cause people a lot of pain, a lot of pain. Um, but I don't think this is the way to go, surrogacy. Just because the technology is there doesn't mean, you know, we should do it. That's my personal opinion. Um, you know, it, it just, you know, even altruistic, I don't think it should be. It should be done. Um, having said that, though, I think it's going to go on. Because once technology is out of the bag, you know, you can't, you can't put it in again. So because of that, um, there needs to be regulation. And that brings us like right back to you know, what we were discussing here in the UK, 
There is a consultation paper that has been um, released. I think they're working towards a draft bill. Um, there are some proposals now. So we are going to see legislation quite soon. Uh, there will be, there has to be, because this is current and the current legislation that we have is just not satisfactory. So there will be legislation and there will be surrogacy, despite my personal views about it. Um, so let's hope that, you know, whatever the new legislation is, is, is as ethical and as child-centered as possible. Um, my preference would be no surrogacy, just outright bad. Yeah, and as far as my personal opinion on surrogacy, I don't have one, uh, mostly because I think it's one of those things like, I don't think I've thought enough about it to really have an opinion. So, you know, I, I think that's why, you know, that, that's why I, I really enjoy doing these podcasts because it gives me, you know, obviously you're furthering your own education to, to think about uh, things that, you know, things that are worth thinking about and, and you know, may become relevant and, and however that may occur. But I think it's always good to, you know, at least get some information and, and you know, then you can go off and, and kind of formulate your own conclusions and then you know if need be you can amend them along the way when new information uh... yeah well like i said even for me my my opinion has changed from where it stood like five six years ago um i will say this with one caveat though i i recognize there's a bit of hypocrisy in this in in what i have just said okay um and yes there is a bit of truth maybe because i don't feel it on such an emotional level um, you know, having this urge to have a child of your own. And, and that's why I'm able to say it so cavalierly that, you know, I think it's wrong. I think it should be bad. I, I recognize there's an element of hypocrisy on my part of saying this. And I will admit, you know, to that hypocrisy mm -hmm. because if flipping it the other way around, a couple of years ago, I had a very serious heart condition and I was in the hospital. And, um, you know, I had an operation. I'm fine now, absolutely fine. Open heart surgery, but it was very serious at that time. And if I didn't have the surgery, it would have eventually led to death. Um, now, of course, when you're in hospital, you have a lot of time to think, you know, and you think of strange things. Um, and of course, you know, you go down the road, okay, what, you know, what if my heart fails and I need a heart transplant? And if there's no hearts to transplant and, and stuff like that. And um, if I had to go, you know, go to the black market and buy a heart, which I probably can't even afford because I can imagine black market hearts. I really <laughs> Um, but let's say I could afford it, right? Let's say I, I, I could afford it and it was possible for me if I needed a heart transplant to go to somewhere and buy a human heart on the black market and transplant it uh, from somebody who desperately needed the money and so decided to sacrifice a family member. Would I have done that to save my life? Um, yes, I would. And, and it's complete, and I own this decision, it's completely unethical immoral okay and wrong but when it's your life on the line and you want to live and and you have the means to make that happen um you will do it and so i try to empathize and i put myself in the position of people who you know and 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 i empathize and said yeah they probably feel that same way you know something that they really want so much um so even though i personally my personal view is i disagree and i think it should be banned I'm not going to condemn someone who wants to do it or, or say, well, you're wrong just because my personal morals feel it's wrong to say that they're wrong because I recognize that push, you know, that, that, that urge. Um, 
of course, you can draw the difference and say, well, my, you can't live without a heart. So it literally boils down to survival, whereas you can live without a child. So it's not exactly a necessity, it's a, it's a want. Um, but I'm not that nasty, you know. I can I recognize it's the same kind of visceral, emotional, it's it's no longer logical. It's just I have to do this right now, you know. Um, so yeah, so so having said that, you know, I, I do because of my views towards like if when I was in that position and my mind went down that road and I understand, yeah, I do empathize. Yeah, and I think on that note, I think that's a, I think that's a good place to stop for today. I mean, it's certainly a, a good place for a little food for thought for people. Yeah, it's a lot of things to think about. Yeah, I was going to talk about child uh, contact. That's another like um, custody issues. That's another sort of very um, controversial topic these days. But if you want to do another podcast, it's sometimes down the road. Uh, on that, be happy to chat another time. Yeah. Perfect. Well, it's always a pleasure having you on the, on the podcast. I mean, I always enjoyed your, your classes. And so it's always fun to, you know, even though I'm graduated, it, it's, it's, I mean, it's great that I can just, you know, send an email to pretty much any lecturer and be like, Hey, want to continue the conversation and, and then we can well, do more publicly. The thing, yeah. The thing about lecturers is if you're going to ask us to talk about our pet topics, we're usually very happy to do so. Um, <laughs> Like me today, you know, with surrogacy, because it's so such a life issue, you know, the consultation paper has come out, we're looking over the proposals and saying, all right, you know, what's, what are these proposals going to work? What's going to happen if they come? Um, so we're just happy to talk about it to someone who wants to listen, really. So yeah, you, you won't get a problem if you go to, to individual lecturers and you ask them for like their pet topic or their pet research area, um, something that they feel quite strongly about. Um, and, and, and yeah, they'll be happy to do so. Like I said, you know, I'm, I'm happy to bend someone's ear for, for two hours of a surrogacy. Well, and, and usually, then... yeah, I, I have a captive audience usually. So it's nice to have a volunteer audience. Well, and, and that's good advice for the listener too. If there's something that you're interested in, you know, whatever topic or hobby or whatever it may be, you know, go find someone who, uh, Go find someone who, because a lot of people, if you ask, will be willing to talk about it and you can learn a lot. So it's, you know, get out there and, and be active in your, in your learning and your engagement with, with topics and whatever it may be. Get out there and do it. So perfect. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. I can't thank you enough, Vicky. It's always great seeing you. Anytime. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your stay. <laughs> thank you very much. We'll talk soon. Right. Take care.